0: Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. This Shabbat, I want to share with you two stories from the Talmud. And I'm going to use a little bit of a poetic license in their translation. But the essence of the story is identical, The first is from the Babylonian Talmud, from the tractate of Ketubot that talks about marriage contracts. And throughout the Talmud there are all types of tangents that are taken in conversation and this is one such tangent. The story goes as follows, that there was a rabbi by the name of Rav Rechumi who used to study in a yeshiva all day long and all night long. He lived in the town of Machoza and he would only come home once a year for a short period of time to be with his wife and with his children. And his wife would look forward to this day for weeks and weeks and months at a time. She would count down the days until Yom Kippur when he would come home and celebrate this holiday and commemorate with his family and his wife. And she counted the days down and counted the days down and it came time for Yom Kippur and he didn't come. Meanwhile, Rav Rechumi was at the yeshiva studying And he was so engrossed in his study. He was so captured with his study that he forgot to even look at the calendar. He forgot to notice that it was the time of the year where he normally goes home and is reunited with his wife and with his family. And at his house, as the eve of Yom Kippur set in and the sun set, his wife started to cry. And shortly after, as he was studying his Torah at the yeshiva, so engrossed in the Torah that he didn't even realize it was time for him to be home with his family or the holiday, the whole building where he was on collapsed and Rav Rechumi died. He fell to his death. I want to share one other story with you from the tractate of Yoma that deals, it deals with the sacrifices of the days of Yom Kippur. And when I'm done with both of these stories, I'll give some context to why I'm sharing them with you. It's the story of young boys in the time of the tabernacle who always wanted the right to clean off the altar's ashes. After a sacrifice was made, a big mess would happen and young kids would fight for the right To clean off the altar. The problem was, like with many kids, that if multiple kids ran up and said, I was here first and the other one said, I was here first, there would become large arguments over who inherited the right to actually clean the altar. It actually became quite a problem. And I don't know what you do when you have multiple kids and they all fight over one item that's not divisible. But in my house, we normally play the game rock, scissors, paper. That's how you get it. And you'd be interested to know, perhaps even intrigued, that the Talmud did something very differently, as they did in the time of the Tabernacle and in the time of the Beit Migdash. What did they do? They shot odds or evens. If two kids were running up the ramp and they both were going to have the right to clean off the altar, but only one could have it, The head priest would come up to them, and they would shoot odds or evens, and whoever won the odds or evens had the right to clean off the altar. Interestingly, by the way, the Talmud tells us that when they shot odds or evens, they only used their first or second finger, that they wouldn't use their thumb, because in those days, the time of the Talmud, the thumb was considered an obscene gesture. Today, we have other fingers that are considered obscene gestures, but in that time, it was the thumb. So it once happened that two boys are running up the ramp to clean off the ashes after the sacrifice because they want this great honor. But one of the boys realizes that if he gets up there with the other boy, he only has a 50-50 chance of inheriting the right because they're going to shoot odds or evens, and when you shoot odds or evens, it's a 50-50 chance you're going to get it. And this boy wanted the right to clean the ashes. He wanted no one else contending with him. So there are two accounts, one in the Mishnah and one in the Talmud, of what this boy does to ensure that he gets the right. In the Mishnah, he kicks the boy off the ramp, and the boy breaks his leg to ensure that he gets the right. In the Talmud, the story tells us that the young kid took out a knife and stabbed the other child in the heart to ensure that he wouldn't contend with him ever again. His father even comes up and says, the father of the young boy comes up and says, My son is still alive. If you pull out the knife from his heart as a priest, you can still use the the knife later. But as a priest, if he is to die, the knife becomes not usable, becomes impure. The anonymous author of the Talmud tells us that they cared more at that time about the purity of their vessels than they did about human dignity and life. Now you're probably looking at yourselves and looking at me saying, the rabbi just shared two really sad and weird stories about the Talmud. One, about a rabbi who is supposed to come home on Yom Kippur to his family, but instead he's so engrossed in his study that what happens, he forgets, and his wife is devastated, and he falls to his death and dies. The second one, ...about a young boy who's learning the family business of priesthood... ...who goes to run up the ramp to clean the altar... ...and doesn't want anyone else taking that right from him. And what does he do? He ensures no one else is going to do it by committing murder. And the father of the young boy even comes to say... ...we can still save the knife even though my son can't be saved. I share these two stories with you... ...because in my humble estimation... ...they are stories that are emblematic of a particular phenomenon that can overcome any people, not just Jews, any people at any time. And the idea and the phenomenon is fanaticism. It's when we become too fanatical about the way in which we pray, the way in which we express our religion, that we lose totally the purpose and essence of what the prayer is in the first place. In the case of Rob Rehumi, Here's a guy who comes home once a year to be with his wife and his family. It's a time for him, while he's home on that visit, to have intimacy with his wife, to connect emotionally with his wife, to celebrate with his wife, to talk about what he's been up to and what she's been up to, to see where her needs are and where his needs are. But he's so engrossed in the study of Torah that he neglects the needs of his wife and doesn't come home. And she's heartbroken, and he falls to his death. And the second case is a case of people learning the family business and offering sacrifices to God. These sacrifices are not sacrifices to the people, they're sacrifices to God. And they're cleaning up these sacrifices and someone commits murder to ensure that he has the honor of doing that. Missing the total essence of where they are and what they're doing. And when the father says, the knife is still clean, He doesn't even realize how sad it is that there's a loss of life. It's as if the anonymous author of the Talmud is telling us, shame on you, what are you even offering a sacrifice for in the first place? You missed the entire essence of what sacrifice and prayer is all about. How embarrassing. How mortifying. These two stories, along with others, have been in my head because of an article that I learned about over an occasion this past week, where an ultra-Orthodox group called the Agudah had its annual celebratory dinner in New York. And this is the season for celebratory dinners, many organizations are having them, and I wish the Agudah blessings and health in their celebratory dinner. They raised a lot of money, it created a lot of awareness, and they do many good things. But one thing that was problematic was that at this dinner, one of the leaders of this aguda, this ultra-Orthodox group, proclaimed loudly and proudly that Reform, conservative, and modern Orthodox groups are blasphemous and will bring about the demise of the Jewish people and they went on to say some pretty nasty things about other stripes that were not where they are, inferring that if it weren't for them, there'd be nothing to reform in the first place. This became problematic because Mayor de Blasio was there, and some people were upset that Mayor de Blasio chose not to speak out and say, I disagree with your stance. Today's Devar Torah words are not in any way a rebuke of Mayor de Blasio and whether he did the right or wrong thing, Frankly, I don't think there's any winning in such a situation for a political figure to be there. And I don't think personally, as I weighed in on the issue, that he did any justice were he to stoop to their level and cause public shame. But I share this with you because I start to wonder often in this age of fanaticism and the age of extremism that happens in all religions, it happens in Christianity, It happens in Islam, and it happens in Judaism, as well as others. As to whether the essence of the Torah, the essence of the prayer, and the real purpose of what it is we're after in our religion is even being remembered. The same Torah that the Agudah and that all of us who are of the Jewish faith believe tells us the following two teachings. It tells us to shame another person publicly is equivalent to death. It's equivalent to death. And any of us who've been publicly shamed know that it's a horrible feeling where we look to crawl underneath a table because we're humiliated. The same teachings of the same Torah for the Agudah and for us and everyone in between tells us that when we walk down the street and we see someone who's hungry or we see someone who's naked or we see someone that needs shelter in rain or cold elements and they ask us for help And we have the resources to help, and we don't help? The teachings tell us that's tantamount to idol worship. Idol worship, meaning if someone's hungry or thirsty, or someone's naked or someone doesn't have shelter, and we don't help them, then we are idol worshipers for not helping them. How can we claim to be Jewish when we don't do that act? It's as if we worship some other god. That teaching telling us unequivocally the essence of who we are is to look after each other, to be sensitive to emotions and feelings. And yes, we can be committed in all different ways, in all different types to Jewish law. But when we follow Jewish law to the point where we hurt others or we ignore their feelings and pain, to the point where we exclude them and cast them out, are we really following what the law asks of us? In Parshat Baalotacha that we read today, and in many other Parshiot, in the book of Leviticus and Numbers in particular, we are given exact formulas for what happened in the Mishkan. How the menorah would be lit, where it would be set, where the ramp would be, how the priest would enter, all of the details for sacrifices and worship. But I ask you, what if they got it wrong? What if they messed up just a little bit? Does it matter? I've had people come to me as the rabbi often and say, Rabbi, I went to a synagogue and I prayed there. I prayed there multiple times and I realized the synagogue isn't oriented to the east. I was actually facing the north when I was praying and it wasn't facing towards Jerusalem. What happened to my prayers? I don't ask the questions, people. And I find when someone asks a question like that, I can't give them only a David Kirshner answer. I have to give them a rabbinic answer because they seem to put a little bit more weight in that. And the rabbis tell us that if you're on a boat and you don't know which way you're oriented, you want to try and orient yourself east if you can. But if you can't, then what are you supposed to do? You orient your heart to the east. Meaning that intentionality matters. If you think you're headed to the east or you're trying in your head... To orient your prayers to the east towards Jerusalem, you fulfilled your responsibility. That's what matters most, your intentionality. Intentionality of thinking of the other and what it is God wants from us matters. And I question in the time of the Talmud, and I question in the time of 2014, those who miss the essence of what God wants for us for the details and particularities of what they think God wants from us. Because in the essence of that fanaticism, we exclude the feelings of others and we really cast out what the Torah was all about. Whether it be sacrifices or reunification with family or trying to do a mitzvah, we miss it all. I'll close with two real short stories for all of you to consider and to ponder. When I was a kid, very young, my father was the rabbi of a small synagogue outside of Tampa, Florida. And it was very lay led. He was the only professional in the synagogue. Maybe there were 150 families there. And every Shabbat, there were a group of women who fought over the right to set up the kiddish, Sponge cake and schnapps and donuts and herring. And when I say they fought over it, it wasn't who would draw the short straw to do it. They were all eager to do it. They all wanted to do it. And some people wanted to bring in their own baked goods, and some people wanted to pick out their own kind of herring the week that they would do it, because it would be a better herring, or a creamed herring, or a matcha's herring. God knows what. And the fights that happened, I remember as a young boy, between these women over which bowl would be used, and which herring would be used, and who would have the right, escalated to the point where they forgot what they were doing. They forgot that they were setting up oneg, which comes from the word of glorification, of appreciation, for after Kiddush. They forgot that this was for people to enjoy after they just prayed to God so they can have a stickle of herring, a piece of herring and sponge cake and talk to each other and schmooze. They forgot the entire essence of what they were after because they were after their own glory and what they thought they could have as right. The second story I share with you is when I was a high school student in the yeshiva, and I had a set of very old tefillin that my father had given me that I wore every day. And one of the rabbis at the yeshiva, who will remain nameless, came up to me and said, David, you know, your tefillin are very, very, very old, and they probably need to be checked. They might not even be kosher. By kosher, what he meant is that the parchments inside might have had letters flick off or something happened to them where they're no longer valid. To which I said to him, well, rabbi, if it weren't kosher, then what does that mean for all the time I was using it? A curious 16-year-old asked the question. He put his hands on my shoulder and he said, in almost a way that he couldn't believe himself. It means your prayers don't count. (laughs) Very few statements in my entire life have shaped my theology more than that one. Now, while we obviously look to make sure the parchments in our mezuzot and in our tefillin are kosher, the intentionality matters more. And I remember at 16, and I remember today at 40, thinking, how could you tell me that when I concentrate and I give thanks to God and I make requests to God and I pray to God, it counts or it doesn't? Isn't that up for God to decide and not human? Isn't that up for God to decide what God really wants from us as opposed to someone who might wear a black hat or a long beard and claim at a dinner what's authentic and what isn't, what counts and what isn't. I appreciate and allow their right to pray and to behave in the way that they want, and I only ask the same for me and the same for my brothers and sisters who aren't practicing Judaism in the way that I want to or that I believe is right, but that they have that right too. If we miss the essence of the plurality of Judaism, and understanding what it is that we all think God wants from us, and we only focus on the particularities of the prayers, the particularities of the commandments, then I worry we could lose the entire essence of what Judaism is about. Let us never stand in that judgment. Let us realize what we have in our blessings of hearing many voices and many streams, and may those voices make harmonious noise, a harmonious sound that allows the chorus to rise together.